Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey, and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had, and I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design Still my favourite is the built structure and interiors. In years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast, and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Michael Malone from Malone, Maxwell and Dennehy. Now, these guys are a Dallas-based firm, award-winning, along with Michael, very involved in setting up uh, tours with the Texas Society of Architect and sits on the body that creates these tours or, or conferences. And with that, we've bumped into each other at a couple of them that I've been lucky enough to attend. And so he's graciously joined us on the podcast today. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Adrian. Very glad to be here. So exciting. I always know when we're on the tours, it's, it's actually hard to get to have a conversation with everybody that's there. And to, it's a pleasure to sort of have people that you can connect with, but then actually follow up with afterwards. So I really appreciate you making the time. Start out by telling us a little bit about like, how did you take this the job of being an architect how did it come to be like you're obviously highly creative you've got the analytics and all the rest you could have chosen a lot of other things in life but you chose architecture what was the journey that got you there well thank you for that question Adrian um the easiest answer is that when I was a kid my father worked for Disney and he was an engineer for them doing very sort of technical things. He didn't do any of the creative artistic stuff, but he helped do things like figure out how to air condition the buildings at Disney World and the World's Fair pavilions and things like that. So he was always the sort of technical guy paired up with the much more creative artistic people. But he would bring things home to show us things he was working on and images and when we were kids, we'd know the projects that he was doing and we could go and visit the parks and things like that. And I always wanted to do that kind of work. I saw yeah, that wow. big, 
work for Disney. But, and so somewhere along the line, I, I got the idea that I should be an architect. And then I went to architecture school. And of course, in architecture school, they tell you that everything Disney does is bad. And <laughs> so you alter your career course. And uh, so I never wound up doing that. But I, I feel like I get to be in a, live in a Disney world of my own just about every day. But I've always liked drawing. I've always liked making things, building models, doing doing things that are creative, and all of that sort of fed into architecture school, which is basically five years of crafts class and uh, you know a great opportunity for creative outlet. So I really enjoy that a lot. That's a I love that journey. Um, and I, I, on my office wall, I have uh, your sketch of Old Faithful. <laughs> And uh, you say like about Disney and I think you, I don't know whether you said this in, when you were speaking in Wyoming, but um, Old Faithful is, is kind of the Disney Inn that, uh, yeah. you know, that everything came from. And I, I, I get that parallel, you know, that parallel of fantasy versus reality and or, or the need for reality but you know you take old faithful and you take disney's kind of just a manifestation of that both have a place they you know they they take yeah. people to a place and certainly homes have shifted in the last like 50 years homes have definitely shifted from just being places of shelter to places of fantasy you know we have resort style homes we have these kind of things now where i suppose it's driven from the growth of wealth this world like interesting that you say that because i have found especially over the last say 15 years or so that that phrase you use resort shows up in interviews for projects people will say things like we want our house to have a feel like a resort or mm. we want a resort style pool or when we're in our our outdoor living area, we want it to feel like a cabana at a resort. And that thinking is pervasive across sort of that, not just the, the wealthiest economic spectrum, but what, what you could think of as sort of upper middle class people with, with some means. Yeah. But I hear that phrase a lot. Yeah. Phrase a lot. But we're, we're the same. It, it's something that um, is regularly dropped into a conversation um and and the other thing that we find is is uh, you know we we have clients who show us pictures from resorts Absolutely. regularly Absolutely. like regularly and and they go we want this but for a home not you know like yeah it's a, it's an interesting shift isn't it and i guess that is just wealth and the ability to travel um and if not to travel, why not have that at home? We we find it even internally in homes. You know, people will go, oh, we want a resort-style bathroom or ensuite with our bedroom. You know, like yeah. uh, we want this kind of thing. Yeah. And that's... I think, I think, yeah, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I think another, another aspect of this is that in our, our world, I, I often wonder if that desire to have amenities and facilities like that in your home is also tied to this sort of shrinking of the public sphere. So you don't comfortably go, like when I was a kid, we had a neighborhood pool in, in the, the, the community where I lived. And on mm -hmm. every afternoon I got on my bike and I went to that pool and I swam in a pool with all the other kids in our neighborhood. And, um, and I was comfortable doing that. My parents didn't go with me. They didn't worry that I would drown. Or, get or be kidnapped or anything else. On the way. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so now I can't even imagine allowing my children when they were younger to jump on their bicycles and ride somewhere else and do that kind of thing. So you kind of have this, this, hmm. I have this idea that what's happening is in some ways people are creating their own version of the public sphere within their own domain and elements of it are things like an outdoor living area or a pool or an outdoor cooking area where they see themselves bringing people to have a, a sort of a controlled safe experience as opposed to going to a public park and barbecuing on a on a public grill um, mm. i don't know that's true 
I feel it. So. I, I'm I'm with you on that. That it, hey, we we don't have a house that we are drawing currently in my firm that doesn't have that whole thing of where's our basically you know whether they've got a pool or not, but where's our barbecue area, our outdoor yeah. living area, our it, it's it's on every house like and and it's I fundamental I, to every house. Uh huh. Yep. It's um. And that thing of, like you just said, like, would I feel comfortable with my daughter jumping on her pushy and ending up at the public pool? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think and so. And I don't know if it's because in reality, things are not as safe as they were. I've, I have, by some reports, most neighborhoods in America are safer now than they ever were. But They were probably safer now than they were when you were a kid. Yeah. Yeah. But the difference, I think the difference is that, that you know, we've, I, I don't want to blame things, but I think uh, the whole interest in social media, which is largely a personal consumption of things mm -hmm. as opposed to in a group sphere, mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea of working from home and not going to an office and being part of a larger community, uh, the more, the, the, the doing takeout food instead of going to a restaurant, all of those things to me are in some way an indication of a, of a lessening of that sort of experience. And again, I, I can talk about feeling it. I, I don't really know if you could back it up with. Uh, whether there's data. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, but I see it. I, when you're saying it, it all um, feels very, very true. Like, you know, I like uh, my, my youngest daughter, she lives um, probably less than 10 minutes walk from school. And it's a little hilly, but 10 minutes walk. I used to ride my push bike a mile away to school down a remote hill um, and cross over, you know, several main roads. Um, I used to walk to that school as well. Like there, there was no <laughs> thought about it. And yet the perceived lack of um, safety now is quite different, you know, and I think it's driven by, um, fear from um, parents more than anything. I don't, the kids don't have the innate fear. I think we just breed it into them. But there, anyway, that, but but it runs those those sort of outdoor amenities, creating this resort environment. It runs parallel with other things in the houses we're doing. I don't know if you're seeing this in your part of the world, but this inclusion of things like safe rooms in houses. These these small bunker-like spaces or, or a room where you can, you can lock it down and, and have a special phone that you can call the local police with. Um, you know, that, that sort of, at one time I thought it was paranoia, but it's such a common request across our work that, uh, wow. you know, I, 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 I just wonder if there's not a, a, a kind of pairing of those kinds of, of things. Maybe. So. We've, We've only ever done one home with a safe room um, and it was a renovation and it already had the safe room, but we did uh, uh, the, the clients, you know, um, uh, well-known and uh, internationally. And we, yeah, we, we created some different routes that could get you there and some different yeah. routes that could get you out of there if need be and stuff like that. Um and not massive paranoia around it. We have created a few homes where we've got secret pieces to the house, you know, secret pieces where there's voids between walls and stuff, where safes and things like that are hidden, where people could hide too, I imagine. But the safe room's a whole nother level of, uh, of I suppose, planning, 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 future planning. It It's fascinating... Um, that you, as you said before, like we probably live in a safer community now than we've ever lived in for the whole. Um, and yet we probably, people are, don't necessarily feel that safe. Uh, I have this question with this. So when, when we think of housing, if you're breaking it down into an emotional point, where does it, where, what, what does a house uh, emotionally have to support in a human being um, 
and you can tell me your version of that. I'd be really keen to hear. But what, and when you just go to the emotional support that a house gives gives a family or you know, people, what is it? What is it that you see? You know, I'm always thinking that we should be when we're making houses with people, they should somehow say something about about the idea of warmth and being together and collectively calm and peaceful Does, doesn't mean that they're bland, but it means that they're an environment where you could relax and enjoy comfort and enjoy sort of the environment around you without stressing or feeling it's an uncomfortable or unwelcoming kind of place. And so the elements that are always so important to us are things like natural lighting, which is a really big deal in our practice and, and a careful use of materials that are reflective, not reflective in a, in a glass way, reflective in a, in a warmth way. So, you know, nice woods, soft stones, uh, color palette that, that steps back and allows objects like furniture and clothing and art stand out in the space. Uh, not so like neutral, that. they are there. And, and I, I think that if you can give somebody a calm place to retreat to, that's also stimulating to them visually and mentally, you, you've done a good job. And, um, and, and I, I, that's the thing we pitch. When, we, when we're talking to people when, about doing a house, we say, you know, this is an opportunity for you to, to tell us everything you sort of want your lifestyle to, to include. I, and I would prefer you not give me 50 Pinterest images of every room in the house. <laughs> or even one, thank you. <laughs> yeah. through and figure out, okay, which one of the 11 kitchen sinks that I'm seeing in this am I supposed to pick? But I'd rather you tell it to me and then let me see if I can interpret that for you and, and give it back to you. And, yeah. um, and, and that's, it's really fulfilling when, and you know that experience yourself, <laughs> when you do it and someone goes, we just love it here or we never like to leave anymore. Yeah. I have a client we did a house for, we, we finished a house for about 20 years ago. It was an enormous, very, very expensive house. And it had an outdoor screen porch with a barbecue area in it and um, kind of an outdoor kitchen. And after they'd been in it for several months, uh, I was over there for a quick visit. And the wife said, you know, we didn't need the other 6,500 square feet of this house. We could have just built the screen porch because this is where Jack comes every night and he drinks a glass of wine and he grills our dinner and sits out here watching TV. And we could have just added a bedroom to this screen porch and been fine. Bedroom and a so, bathroom and we would have been all happy. Yeah, everything's perfect. Isn't that an interesting phenomenon as well? I loved, the, I loved your list, by the way. I, I really loved your list. And I, I'm going to take it back to something in a minute that um, will be fun to talk about. But um, isn't that an interesting thing that you can have this massive mansion wrapped around you and yet the simplest of things bring you the most joy and the most settled um I suppose, uh, settled environment. So just to be in a screen porch, in touch with nature, to be able to grill your food, to be able to watch TV or be entertained, to yeah. be sitting comfortably, to hell with all the rest of the house. It's like, it's like for what, you know, for, for what? Yeah. Um, when you were going through your list and, and saying, you know, like using um, you know, soft stone and, and, and wood, beautiful woods and things like that. Like my mind runs off into a Disney movie, you know, of, of this beauty yeah. and feel and stuff. And um, this would be topical and it's always, you know, they say don't do topical things on a podcast, but COVID made that a, a rule that's always been broken. Um, Elvis's Graceland. Have you visited it? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I went on a business trip to Memphis about, 30 years ago, not too long after he had died, within probably, you know, probably 15 years after he died. And the people that I was there on the business trip with, we got done early and they said, well, would you like to go toward Graceland? And I said, uh, you know, I didn't know them that well. I was just 
trying to interview with them to try to get a project. So I said, wow. They said, well, we have visitors. We'd love to go there. So we went to Grace, <laughs> went to Graceland and, um, I, you know, and I, I, I think now I must have been a, a, a pretty snotty guest because I remember walking around looking at it. I had my camera. I didn't take any pictures at all. A highbrow damn architect. <laughs> I didn't go, wow, this is great. You know, I was very bad. And then I have to tell you one more story about that because you asked. I was on a flight from Paris to Dallas about 10 years ago, and I sat next to an Australian woman and her daughter, who were very lovely, and they had flown, I don't know why they went to Paris to come to Dallas, but they, they, had, they had flown there. And so she told me, she, I said, so you're going to the US, how long are you going to be there? They were coming for like three or four weeks. And I said, and what are you seeing? She said, well, first, we're arriving in Dallas and catching a plane to Memphis, we're going to Graceland. And I was like, what? Of all the places in the United States to go, all I thought she'd go Yosemite or Disney World or New York. She's going to Graceland. <laughs> and so I, she goes, uh, have you been? It's supposed to be fabulous. And I said, I have been. You're going to have a great time. So, yeah. Yeah. Like um, and, and for everybody who's listening to this that hasn't been to Graceland, uh, whether you're an Elvis fan or not, it is an extravaganza. It, it is something else. And as you were going through your list of, um, of, 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 you know, the warmth and the the calm and peacefulness, and I'm thinking, you know, you walk into that front room and it's got the the, pe the peacock lounge on one side with the piano and, um, and then, you know, like the, the billiard room downstairs with the Arabian tent type ceiling and the fabric walls and the theater room with the luau room. And oh, the, it's just, yeah, the the tiki room, I called it, but the luau room. Yeah. Like it just with the shag pile carpet and the, the tiki carvings from Hawaii and all those things. And I was thinking about how um, it was like, it, again, a resort style home but it was just a mixture of 50 resorts it was and um when you kind of got that it was like on that site or, or in that house because it's actually a, whilst it's not a massive house it's actually still quite a big house um this thing of creating your own world or sanctuary of where you are um yeah and what we're seeing people do uh, sort of, as you said, like in the middle income kind of bracket is do that more. Whereas once it was maybe just the people like Elvis and the, because the movie Elvis is out, I'm going to see it on uh, Saturday, Saturday night. Um, I've been putting it off for about a week and a half. Uh, so a group of us are going on Saturday night, but um, I don't know whether you've seen the movie yet. Not yet. But it, I will. Yeah. It, uh, it, it, by all accounts, is really fantastic. And uh, I'd be really keen to, just those references from knowing what his house is like. When I went, I was the opposite of you. I've been twice. Um, the first time I went, uh, I was like in my 20s and um, we pulled up uh, across the road where there was a car park and stuff and we pulled up and walked across and all the rocks on the wall were all filled, scribed with people, you know, with a felt pen, their messages. And I only really remember one, which was Elvis, I married my wife because she looked like you. Because it, it was <laughs> exactly. Wow. <laughs> which, wow. which, of course, we just laughed and laughed and laughed over that. And then doing the tour. And then I went back maybe about um, five years ago, four or five years ago. And this time, I photographed just about everything and I have, uh, I put together a big PowerPoint of it actually. And, <laughs> and, and of course across the road now, there's all the sound stages and there's the airplanes and all those things. And I put together a big PowerPoint of it and I've shared the PowerPoint with a few people. I always said to people, oh, I will do it as a workshop on design at some point. So maybe I'll roll that out now. Um, you know, like as a, as a workshop on design and on architecture and design and talk about, you know, this, that because the movie's there and it's topical, people would probably find it really interesting. But yeah, you know, he had a squash court in there and things like that as well. So you take that 
resort style lifestyle thing and plug it into it. But his was more the Disney version than the calm. I loved your descriptions there of, you know, it, it's togetherness and it's peaceful and it's calm. And then how the materiality brings that to it as well as the light. Um, and, and the light, of course, makes every bit of difference to how that is. Uh, I, I was interviewing a guy called Jeffrey Dungan from down in Arkansas, no, Alabama, sorry. Um, and Jeffrey said to me, well, really all we do is, is create boxes and, um, and try and get light and air in them. You know, <laughs> that's what we do. And uh, it, was, it was fascinating because it was just that simple, really. That's, that's our job is create these boxes. Um, so tell me with, with um, things like you're, you're an outdoors man. You love the outdoors. And as say, um, we were recently in Wyoming together. Tell me a bit about those kind of journeys and how that inspires your work um, and connects you to your customers. Well, one, one of the things that I realized relatively early on is you know, architecture, for the most part, is a, a somewhat urban activity. If, if you, I know there are wonderful architects working in the bush somewhere and doing magical things, but most of us are in cities or suburban areas and we're working in, um, and I, I grew up having opportunities to get to the outdoors and go to national parks and things like that. And, and that was something I always enjoyed and never took for granted. And so when I had children, I wanted them to have similar experiences. So we started doing that. And in one of my, in my early career, I got a chance to go to Jackson Hole, which became very important. And I went on a work trip, believe it or not, and came back and um, told my wife, I said, we got to go there. And we went the next time we had a chance, which was probably within about six months of that trip. And then we've gone back every, every year. Um, but but I think that natural environments, whether they're just deserts or, or oceans or beautiful mm -hmm. mountains like you see in Jackson Hole, it's always nice to see those as a counterpoint to the built environment. So I like to be in a beach setting that has a beautiful beach town near it with wonderful buildings built over a wide period of time that that sort of show their age and have grown up in that weather and that climate and 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 are sort of softened by it and i like mountain towns like jackson where there's sort of an indigenous architectural tradition that pretends yeah. to be there that sort of fake log cabin western mm -hmm. thing but now that that tradition is over 100 years old 120 years old so there's a good representation of of not just architecture built before there were architects designing it, but people like you and me interpreting that mm -hmm. look and doing wonderful mm -hmm. things. Um, and then, you know, in Dallas, where I live, we, we only, we, the, the prairies around central Texas are beautiful, but they've, they've largely been developed right around Dallas. So there is no sort of indigenous landscape left. There's, there's nothing authentic left. Um, so in, when we work here, I try really hard to honor the things I do have, which is big skies, lots of natural light, um, a climate that for much of the year is really hospitable, even though yeah. in the summer it's kind of miserable. Yeah. And, um, and those, so that, that awareness, I don't want to sound like we're nature architects. You know, I don't have that sort of DNA that says that everything's got to in some way speak to or deal with that. But, um, but I, I want I want the houses, especially the houses that we do in this area, to in some way say something about the fact that six months a year in Dallas, if you can be behind a screen, you can be outdoors if bugs won't attack you. Yeah. If you have a fan on, you don't need air conditioning. Yeah. So we we, we find opportunities to to prove that over mm. and over again. Mm. I think that's a really beautiful way of taking you know, that um, the beauty of the outdoors and putting it in to even an urban landscape, you know, like it, it's, yeah. it's being able to transition those. I have a, a thing that 
I travel a fair bit, um, partly because I think that you get perspective so quickly from travel. It's the easiest way to get perspective, I think. And um, one of the things that I see, and go back to your comment before about, you know, 50 Pinterest interest, uh, Pinterest um, images, is that there's a real homogenization of architecture globally. You know, a house that could be in Dallas could easily be in Brisbane or in Sydney um, and wouldn't necessarily look out of place there. But we, I was going to say lost. I don't know that it's lost. That might be the wrong term. There is this thing where the nuances that belonged or the styles that belonged because everything was built from something that was in a 50-mile radius of of where it was built is something that's lost and then the speed of technology has allowed everybody to see what everybody else is doing and then we end up with like a global trend in architecture versus a local trend in architecture and the, the same you know you just think of something as simple as shopping we can go to any major town in the world and we can buy our Prada or our Gucci or our, you know, Chanel or whatever it is. You know, we can go to any liquor store and pretty much I can get Tito's down the road from where I am and you can get Tito's down the road from where you are. Um, that kind of homogenization. Sorry. I can get Foster's Lager down the road from me too. <laughs> you know, we can't. There's the fa- that's the most fascinating thing. You can, it's hard to find in Australia. It's become an international brand, but it's not not hardly seen in Australia. Isn't that amazing? I'll send you some. No, 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 don't, please, never. (laughs) I'll drink it with you in Dallas. (laughs) Um, No, but that's homogenization and instead of localization. Well, it's, it's like when I go to restaurants in Dallas and the house wine is Australian. Yeah, you know, it's 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 uh, kind of funny to me that that number of restaurants that my wife and I go to regularly, they're all the house wines are Australian now, which is really interesting. to which, me. It's crazy, isn't it? So what do we do as or, or what do you see as being kind of the future of this? Because if we get this homogenization goes too far, which I personally, I think it kind of has. Um, all of a sudden everything is bland again there is no reason to travel it's the it's built the resort at home so I don't have to go to Cabo you know it's that kind of thing so what what um, and I don't mind that to some degree because the less people traveling might make it a little more expensive but it's a little less crowded and easier to get a booking as well Um, but what what are we what's the responsibility or what do you see the thing of being that we get our localized um, architecture vernacular um, and maintain it or grow it or create it in a space. Um, How does it happen and what's the responsibility around that? And should it happen even, or should we just all live in things that look the same? That's, you know, that's a really interesting question, Adrian, and one that I don't, I don't know. I've, I've, I've been perplexed for most of my professional career at the way that people like you and I, not necessarily you and I, but people like you and I tend to to do projects that follow fashion trends, just like we change our clothes. Exactly. You know, if I look at the work I was doing 30 years ago, it looks very different than the work I'm doing now. And um, partly because I'm more mature now, but I, I, I think that what you said was really right, that one way or another, we're all exposed to things that everybody's doing. And, um, and, and so are our clients because they're saturated yeah. with images. You know, the, the, one, the one great one for me is when, when people started doing waterfall edges on kitchen counters, mm-hmm. stone wraps down the sides, and all of a sudden it's a standard now. Everybody's doing one. Like, why are we doing that? How, what, how did that happen? And it's, but I mean, that's just an easy kind of off the shelf throwaway example, but. Well, they're doing it on buildings as well. Boxing the front of them, you know, like box this piece off. Like, yeah. And so those are, 
those are those are things. And it, and then I, I think about it like fashion, and uh, there are certain clothing elements that come out, and everybody wears them. And mm-hmm. and uh, and architecture is is not different. I, I think to get past that, as individuals, we have to you. Know, we have to first of all, we have to want to. Not every architect wants to do this. But we have to want to search out unique solutions that somehow are unique to the project that you're doing and special to them. And I think that's something that some of us are inspired by that opportunity, and others just take. I won't say the easy solution, but one of the good things is that those examples that are in those those multitudinous available images, you can see something that looks good or not. You can say, hey, yeah. that looks pretty good. I think I'll yeah. use that. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it, it can be ruined in that process, but also it's, it's safer than inventing something and doing it yourself. And I don't mean crazy inventing things, just no, thinking no. through it. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, the other thing is, is that clients often ask, um, how, how, you know, um, show me an example of that. <laughs> um, yeah. And you go really like I can't because I'm inventing it, you know. Like um, and it's like oh okay, but I can draw it for you, like you. I can sketch it for you. Oh yeah, but but is there a photograph of it? No, there's not. We can get a rendering done of that. I could render that for you. Oh okay, and and really, um, I think with the massive amount of imagery, there's a running to certainty as opposed to a running to exploration um, often. And uh, yeah, like I, I look at for the example of being in Wyoming and, you know, we went to the log cabin house um, and it's a fantasy environment. And then we went to some other amazingly beautiful modern homes as well. Um, and then the, the big uh, Grand Tetons, um, visitor center as well and that that one probably spoke to me most as it was a part of its environment deliberate to be and, yeah raised job on that was incredible um and and I felt like I was in the right place in the right environment and in the right space and it engaged my senses and protected me from what was outside at the same time it was uh that was a a, a uh, I suppose pivotal because it wasn't like anything else that there was to to measure it against. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I, that that's interesting that you mentioned that because that particular that particular um, building, I saw it the year it opened, which is mm-hmm. probably twenty years ago now, and I've gone back and seen it annually. And it, there, I have a visceral response to that building. It's, mm. it's like you said, it's, it, it uses language that as architects, we all understand the sort of mm. wood used a certain way and these sort of post and beam Stonehenge-like elements. But it, the composition and the way it's put together and the way it relates to the site that <sighs> it's on and the yeah. way it, it, it takes the climate in to, to, to do things are, are it's transcendent and mm. it, it you realize that building could only be there and 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 be as powerful as it is it could be in a lot of other places but it would not be as powerful as it is in that setting and that's that's great architecture i was and, about you know, to i was about to use those exact words that's great yeah. architecture it, it, yeah. it delivers and it's sympathetic and it delivers and it delivers and it delivers. I imagine I'd be like you, if I lived close enough, I would go every time. It's a bit like going to, you know, like if you um, are in a city and there's, you know, an amazing chapel or something like that. And you just keep going back because it, it, unru- it reveals something else to you every time you get more familiar with it. Yeah. We have the, the Kimball art museum by Lucan, you know, 40 minutes away in Fort Worth. Yeah. And I get there two or three times a year. Um, every time I have an architect friend come from somewhere else, we could go to the Kimball Art Museum. And and every time it feeds you, every yeah. time you're aware you're in the presence of something done by somebody exceptional who who far transcended the program to make this amazing building. And it's on a fairly 
nondescript lot in a, in a sort of a, not in downtown Fort Worth, out to one side, but it's definitely a, a piece of placemaking. And it's, it's ancient and new at the same time. It's, you know, you talk about Luke Hahn forever, but, um, yeah. you know, having, having examples of architecture like that, I, an, an, an architect from your part of the world that I've always admired, um, Harry Seidler. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, his, his, his commercial buildings, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I know them from books, mm-hmm. but I got to see his Australian embassy in Paris on, and every time I go to Paris, I go to see that building and, um, you know, you can't get in anymore. You have to kind of yeah. sneak around. Yeah. Outside. Those days are gone. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but I, you know, I had studied his work as a student for years, whenever it would get published, you know, I'd, I'd look for it. And then, I went to see it and what you don't know from the magazines and from the photographs that you have to see is the level of craft with which those buildings were made and the beautiful proportions. Pro- you know, the proportionately. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you look at them and you think most of his work is sort of commercial office buildings, but they're like the best commercial office buildings in the world. And um, so I, I, he, he, you know, going back to your earlier comment about how what makes stuff homogenous, you can go find buildings. Seedler's buildings could be comfortable in Dallas, but there are very few architects in Dallas doing commercial buildings as well as he did. And if you went to them and you saw them, you'd want to go up and touch them and, and understand them better because when you're with them in the context, you understand how they're put together. Yes. And what makes them so special? Yes. So, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting thing. I, I this kind of piece of the of my questioning is something that just rolls around in my brain constantly. Um, and when I go to amazing structures, um, and they are, you know, pieces of genius that are that are put into their landscape and they're at one with their landscape. I, I'm pretty much just in awe. You know, I have to kind of slap myself to come back to reality to to try and uh, discover the journey, discover the journey that put this where it is and how it is and why it fits and why it's um, why it feels so good. Why it, you know why it all happens. Mm, fascinating. Um, I have a question, which is um, if you were talking to a person who was going, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to become an architect or maybe maybe studying. What advice would you give them that you've gained, obviously, from a career in it? What advice would you give them um, to help them on their way? What to see and what not to see as such? Well, what to see and what to well, it doesn't have to be C, just what would you say? What would what, what would yeah. it be like? Okay, well, you're in this thing, and here's, here's, here's what would have helped me, or this is what I would see would be the smart move. Yeah, I've, 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 I've got a lot of young people in my life because I teach a studio, a design studio at, at the University of Texas at Arlington every semester, as, and uh, which drives my partners crazy because three days a week in the <laughs> afternoon I, I disappear. But they indulge me. They're very kind. I, I think as long as I do a majority of the business development for our office, they'll, they'll give me a pass. But um, one of the things I've been trying to get people to do is that sometimes architects tend to ignore a lot of the other things in the world around them. Not intentionally. It's just we, we tend to be microscopic in our investigation of buildings and spaces and not so much about other things. So I encourage the students that are around me to become interested in a lot of other stuff because it, it can inform what you do and, and frankly make you more interesting to the people you work with. So, you know, I, I say you should read a lot and you should read fiction, quality fiction, and you should read history and you should read art history and you should know something about art. So you should go to museums and look at paintings, not just contemporary paintings that you could you could draw yourself, but you should look at the masters and try to understand. Don't decide if you like the subject matter or not, but look at the way the light is 
portrayed in the painting. Look at the composition. Look at the way it's put together. Yeah. And and start to build a visual encyclopedia in your head and a and a mental encyclopedia of the differences between people, places, cultures, art, music, all those other things, so that you're open to receiving a lot of stuff. And um, in my in my class, they'll usually do an analysis of a painting as one of the first activities in the semester, whether they're graduate students or second year students. And there are, you can just see them on the at the beginning of it, like we're in architecture school and we're going to do an analysis of a painting. That sounds hard. But by the time they get into it a little bit, they sort of go, well, wait, maybe there is something here. And the really good ones, it's transcendent. They go, you know, I never went to an art museum again. Without. They looked at art the same way. Yeah. And if so, you have one student tells you that out of 13 or 14, you know you, you did your job. So, I love that. I love that. Um, I love the read piece for starters. Yeah. I really think that. I have this thing where I'm not actually a reader because I'm dyslexic, but in saying that I go, I remember reading years and years ago, the history of the world is stored in books. And um, I thought that was a really great comment. Um, I, my hobby, as you could probably see. Uh, yeah. You're a reader. <laughs> I, I, I read a lot and it's, it's, um, it's something that I can do when I travel on an airplane mm -hmm. and it's something I can do. When I travel in a car, I have I buy books on audio books on CD, yeah, and listen to them. Um, I, I listen. That's when I listen to all the authors that I shouldn't be spending time wasting time reading. I can listen to them in the car, so that's when I can listen to Stephen King and yeah, right, Le Leanne Moriarty, and uh, you know people like that. So it works out really well. But what? but yeah, I think I think being being open to a broad variety of experiences makes you makes you a better architect and it makes you more in, empathetic with the people you're doing the work so for. That was one of the things I was going to add to that was the empathy that it brings. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it makes you understand more of it. One of the things I love about the reading part is when we, and I said, don't read a lot, but when we read, we imagine and yeah. our ability to imagine spaces and stuff you know often people say oh the movie was never as good as the book and that's because emotionally the movie delivers a visual extravaganza but the book delivers an internal dialogue um that you that you form in your mind and you form you know the character is whoever you imagine it is and then the environments they're in is whoever they imagine it is or you imagine it that they are in um, and one of the things I think that's really important with that is when you're talking with clients, you are essentially trying to read the internals of them to get to that out, that same outcome. You've got to be so empathetic to the environment and then also to their thoughts of the environment that you're trying to unravel it. Um, yeah. And the reading probably is brilliant for that. Absolutely brilliant for it. You know, one other thing I was going to say is that and another important thing that this ties into is we we all grow up in a in an environment of some kind, whether it's an expansive environment with a lot of opportunity for a lot of variety or whether we grow up on a small farm somewhere. But we all grow up with with a preconceived set of, yeah. of notions oh, and values. Yeah. And you were talking about travel before. And for me personally, when I was in college, I went on a study abroad trip to Europe with as part of the architecture program at Auburn when I was an undergraduate. And one of the things that was interesting about that trip, I grew up in a, a, a family of very conservative, very patriotic Americans um, who, who, who had very sort of established views on what the world was and how it functioned and what our place in it was. And, and I went and spent basically a semester in, in Europe with, uh, with sort of a background going there of, you know, Europe is this has been continent. These, these people have all become socialists. They, they don't have their act together. They, they can't do anything. They don't function. 
we've saved their ass in two world's wars, you know, this entire sort of litany of, of, of European things. And then when I went there and I spent a, a few months in, in places like Paris and Rome and Florence mm-hmm. and Venice and London, you, it sort of dawned on me, these people had a pretty great life and culture. You know, it was incremental. Their development didn't involve us much at all. And maybe some of the things that politically might have been abhorrent to people like my parents made a lot of sense for a lot of people. And, <laughs> yep. and flipped a switch in me that changed my life forever. I came back with a very, very different worldview, a very different understanding of my place in that world, mm. and, and much more empathy and understanding for different people. Mm. And I'm embarrassed to say it took me going away, but um, it, it did that. And I, don't, I don't think that's something to be embarrassed about. I think it would be embarrassing if it hadn't flipped the switch. Yeah, because <laughs> the thing is, is that like, I love, I love America as a place to travel in because it has so many diverse cultural pieces to it. You know, that yeah. the settlement of America and, you know, the different landscapes of America, it is so diverse that it's, um, if you were to say, well, I'm going to go to Europe. America has got the similarity of having diverse, they will speak English, but it has diverse cultural heritage in different areas, a lot like Europe does. Um, Whereas I take somewhere like Australia, which has a really diverse um, native culture. uh, And when I say it's really diverse, it's still probably within a band that's that's very from one side. You think Australia is the same size as America as a landmass. So the United States and Australia are about the same size. It's got a very similar sort of um, section through there when it comes to native culture. And then when we, and, and because the Aboriginal here didn't necessarily build things, there's not a lot of structures or anything like that that was left behind. Um, and they were somewhat nomadic, you know. So again, not a lot of structure. The American Indian um, you know, that where they're nomadic with teepees and things like that, similar, didn't leave a lot of structure behind them. So it's harder to, to grasp onto those pieces. But when the white settlers came, you know, all of ours in Australia, pretty, not all, but most of ours in Australia came from England, um, from, you know, a very standard white section of culture, that uh, well, obviously there was the, the colonies of criminals and stuff like that here as well, but just very similar. And same in New Zealand, very similar. Not too much diversity against what the landscape, um, they weren't living with it, they were living on it or in it. Um, and that sort of shift of things, and that tends to be how we operate now. Uh, yeah, I find that that whole kind of piece of it fascinating. Um I want to wrap up, but I want to ask you about, uh, well, maybe maybe something to do with Wyoming and what's next with the Texas Society of Architects. Um, what, what's the exciting future? Because uh, I know you're heavily involved in there. Um, yeah, tell us about that. What, you know, what sort of things they're looking to in the future and stuff like that. So we're, we are... Uh... The, the conference that we attended together this past year in Jackson Hole was our 10th annual design conference, which is, a, a, as, as you talked about, it's a great event. We do it three or four days every year. We, um, we bring important architects from around the world as speakers, and then we have, uh, they speak, and then we have tours of buildings that typically you could not get into normally, like mm. single family homes. Mm. So the, Jackson Hole trip was a, our 10-year anniversary trip. We've done others. But this coming year in February, late February or early March, the dates haven't been completely set yet, we're going to do uh, West Texas ranches. So we're going to base somewhere um, in West Texas and visit a number of ranches done uh, by the firm Lake Flato, which oh, has yeah. an international reputation. And by the firm Rotenberry Wellen, Mark Wellen, who you might have met in Jackson Hole. Um, and we're, we're going to visit some of these incredible ranches around Lakey, Texas and places like that. 
And then uh, we have uh, very wonderful Shimon Sutcliffe, the firm from Toronto, are going to be our keynote speakers, and we are working on other ones, so there'll be more on that. Uh, but that trip will be different because it's a completely decentralized environment. West yeah. Texas is the romantic West that all of you can think of. Um, and then what what kind of feeds in and, and goes to those, that landscape. We're hoping to have a cultural historian and an author as some of our speakers to talk about West Texas and what it means. And then um, we'll travel by bus from ranch to ranch to see the these these incredible projects. So uh, I, it'll be a, great, be a great weekend. If you if you always want to be a cowboy, this is the trip to come on. Well, I thought that for Jackson Hole, I turned up with my hat. <laughs> yeah, that's that's being a cowboy with trees and grass. We're talking West Texas. Being a cowboy with dirt. And, dirt. Uh, yep. I'm so looking forward to it. I have a, a romantic um, notion of uh, the West. And, you know, sort of like you hear about people who are Francophiles because they love um, France yeah. so much. Well, I'm a, a, I don't know what they call it, but um, I, I think in a past life, I probably was in the West somewhere and I have this affinity with it that is ridiculous. Um, and so I... I love that wide open landscape. And the thing you said before about honoring um, in, in Dallas, honoring the, the size of the sky um, and, and that big open space that the sky delivers. That's one of the things that West Texas will deliver uh, for that, which again, I think will just be sensational um, as a way of opening up the people and, and, and very in touch with the landscape, very in touch which again will be a, absolutely joyous to be in that sort of environment. Mm. And it's always great to be in those places with a bunch of other architects because, um, you know, the, the thing that's, that's been so fun about these conferences are you get a hundred people together and the only thing they have in common is their profession, which means mm -hmm. everything about them they have in common. We have the same <laughs> vocabulary, the same values, the same goals, the same understanding of, of what we do. And, you can almost find a way to connect with every single person there in the course of a weekend. It, and, and it's, for me, it's, a, it's the thing I always tell people that the reason you get involved in a professional organization like the Texas Society of Architects is because you make all these great friends. Yeah. It's, it's the thing they don't tell you is you get a lifetime of friends out of that activity. It is, and, it is so insanely true that you get, yeah, we get to have a conversation like this. But yeah, yeah, it's it, because I met you at a conference. Uh huh. Uh huh. It's um. I think it does bring amazing value and it brings amazing perspective and learning as well. Um, and I I hope uh, this is how I see it, but I hope that it brings um inspiration that stops homogenization. Um, that that's one of the it's things. A good, it's a good goal. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, so I am so looking forward to that. I can't wait for the dates to be put out. My wife wants them even more than I do, so she knows when we're going away. Um, <laughs> You're going to bring her with you to Texas, huh? Good. I'm going to bring fun. her, whether she comes, I don't think she'll come on that conference piece. I think she'd probably poke herself in this, you know, in the eye with a stick rather than go and look at a whole bunch of houses. But um, certainly, yeah, we're going to come together on that on that journey and uh, you know, my wife said that this past one was the first one amy came on yeah and she asked me she said are all of them this good and i said yeah they're pretty great she this said, one wasn't might, so good honey the I others might, were better i might come again yeah we'll see <laughs> oh yeah i think like it, it's to be out in that west texas landscape and do that would be just again another mind-changing experience like another mind-altering experience which would be really cool Michael, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Adrian. This was such a pleasure. Always, always love to visit about stuff like this. So you yeah. can call me anytime. I, I will do. And I'm looking forward to coming to the Kimball Art Museum when I'm next in Texas with you. All right. Um, we fly in here and uh, hang out for a few days. And then that would can, be fun. Together to West Texas. That would be, hey, that's an idea. I like that. I like that's that. an idea. We'll coordinate that. We'll do that. We'll make it happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Michael, thank you. Have a wonderful Have evening and I'll get on with my day.
Yeah, Cheers, have man. a good time. Bye. Bye. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, let's say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.